Yeah, it was it was definitely terrifying. Um, and I, I remember feeling a lot of anger about academia and a lot of feeling like I'd been tricked and also the big question of like, what the hell am I supposed to do with this skill set that I have and where can I use it? Welcome to the Grad School Sucks podcast, where we believe that your life and career after grad school should rock. I'm your host, Matt Carlson. Today, I'm talking with my friend, Dr. Chris Cornthwaite. Chris received his PhD back in 2019, and since then he's been wearing a variety of hats, professionally speaking. Chris currently works for himself as an SEO consultant and content writer for companies that are wanting to create more of a footprint online. Previously, he's served as a policy analyst for a think tank that focused on immigration and refugee programs. Additionally, Chris is a big-time blogger with over 15,000 followers on Twitter and thousands of website hits monthly to his main blog called Roostervane. At Roostervane, Chris discusses his own career path since graduating with his PhD, and he provides guidance on how folks from all walks of life can find careers with purpose. Today, we discuss how academia tricks grad students into betting on having a career in the ivory tower. We talk about how Chris found his first professional job after graduating. Spoiler, the job had nothing to do with his degree. And we share some thoughts on what grad students today should do to prepare themselves for their career after grad school. One quick note, we had some technical difficulties when we first sat down to record today's episode, so you may notice a slight transition about 15 to 20 minutes in where I combined the original meeting with our makeup conversation about a week later. Anyway, I'm so excited to be able to share my conversation with Chris with you today. Be sure to stick around to the very end so you can hear Chris's answers to our bonus questions. And without further ado, let's get to the interview. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us. And thank you, Chris Corthwaite, for uh, joining me on the podcast today. Chris has a PhD in religious studies, and he runs a consulting company helping tech companies with their content strategy. He also has a website called Roostervane, where he uh, has career advice and services. And we will talk about all of that more. Chris, how are you doing today? Good. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you for joining me. So uh, let's start at the beginning. PhD in religious studies. What made you want to go to grad school in the first place? <laughs> I think the obvious answer is like a severe lapse of judgment. But I think in, <laughs> in all honesty, I just didn't really know what else to do. Um, I, I really enjoyed the study of religion. And there's sort of, I mean, there's a personal story even beyond before that about how I thought I was going to be a, a minister, actually, like in a church. And I started training for ministry, went through a crisis of faith, but I still kind of enjoyed the academic study of religion. I thought it was really interesting. Um, so I kind of just kept going and it was <laughs> took off, took off my, I guess, practitioner hat and put on my scholar hat and started studying religion as an academic, which is actually like way different, but not a lot of people realize that because I think, I mean, a lot of people still assumed doing a PhD in religious studies meant I was going to be a priest, but it's really just was studying the thing that, you know, the way that humans make meaning and the way that we, um, the way that eventually religions kind of evolve and the way that we live within them. So I, I really enjoyed studying religion and still do. I found it really interesting and it's still kind of intersecting with my work today. So, Yeah. Yeah. What'd you end up doing your PhD on or your uh, dissertation on rather? Oh my God. My dissertation was on 
<laughs> I barely remember. Um, no, it was, um, I looked at basically the movement of religion in antiquity. So I was interested in like Greek and Roman religion and Christianity as a part of that. Um, so I was, I looked, I did like a comparative studies of how, study of how four different, like, I guess we could say quote unquote religions moved on trade routes across the Mediterranean. So, um, for that, I did some diaspora theory and I got to go, I went to Greece too and studied, did some study there with the material objects, that kind of stuff. So yeah, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. That's cool. Not super so, in, in retrospect, like probably not the thing I'd do if I was doing it again, but I did enjoy it. So. Uh, yeah, I think I think most of us would probably say that about our dissertation. Yeah, you know how it is, right? You just kind of fall into it, and you don't necessarily, Dude, you know, you need something to write on, so you kind of come you, up. You with need something. something, yeah. Yeah. And I, I had a professor tell me that you you're not going to get married to your dissertation. You don't have to live with it forever. You just have to get it done and move on. Yeah, that was super helpful. Yeah. Um. So, how did your when you were doing your PhD? What did you think you were going to do professionally after you graduated? Oh, 100%. I thought I was going to be a tenure track professor. I, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I kind of, I, I fell in love with the dream. And I had, I had a supervisor who was very, um, I, like, I guess, famous, for lack of a better word, like, in, in the field, at least, he was very well known. And he was like, always jetting off to Paris. And I'd see him on a Friday and a Monday. And in between that time, he'd gone to a conference in Vienna or something. And it was just, I thought he had the coolest life. Um, and that, and I enjoyed the kind of working on my own and creating stuff. So I definitely thought professor was the, uh, was the dream for me. And so when, when did you start to think that maybe that wasn't going to pan out or maybe you didn't want that anymore? I don't think the not wanting it is more complicated. That came a lot later. I think, I think realizing that I wasn't going to be a professor probably, I don't know. I mean, I, I remember sitting through seminars. We had like professionalization seminars as early as first or second year of my five-year PhD and thinking, you know, talking about jobs outside of academia and thinking like, that's not going to be me because I'm going to be a professor <laughs> and hearing about how hard the academic job, mar job market was and saying to myself, like, no, I'm going to beat the odds. Um, and I published as much as I could. And I, you know, did all these um, fellowships abroad in different places and tried to build an interesting CV. And then I, I guess it was my uh, like after my last time in the academic job market, which I think was my fifth or sixth year of the PhD, kind of as I was finishing. And uh, there really weren't any jobs in my field. There may have been three or four globally that I could apply for. Um, the tricky thing about religion, too, is is um, like the secular study of religion kind of overlaps a lot, especially with what I was doing with like both kind of classics departments and also what you would call like a like a biblical studies department. Um, like at a seminary or something. And the tricky thing is that a lot of, especially in the United States, a lot of universities teaching kind of Bible stuff want you to have a certain statement of faith or a certain perspective. So they'd kind of control what you could teach. So I couldn't really apply for those jobs. And then I wasn't really a classicist, so I couldn't apply for those jobs either. <laughs> so I was sort of kind of had a weird niche in the middle of like religion, Bible diaspora and immigrant stuff and um, a bit of Greek and Roman stuff. But anyways, um, that's a really long way of saying I was at the end of my PhD before I realized that I was not going to be a professor. Yeah. Yeah. And so then what, what started going through your head, like in terms of what were you going to do next? Yeah, it was really, I mean, it was really scary. I think I, I remember living in Greece and it was, I think it felt like it should have been paradise. Me living, I remember specifically, um, this moment where I was on vacation with my family on a Greek island 
And like, it was, it was amazing. And I remember meeting this American couple and the lady kind of found out what we did. And she said to me, it sounds like you live a charmed life. And I thought, well, it does seem like my life, like to an outsider, I mean, traveling the world and doing this kind of cool research on a Greek island of all places. If you got to do research, it's not a bad place to be. Um, but it was really, I think that was really kind of coming at the same time as a lot of real angst and fear. And I remember going back to the villa that we were staying in and the place of villa, it sounds like it was just a little apartment, but I remember going, um, it was sort of just a collision course between, it was kind of a collision course with reality. Um, so it was definitely terrifying. I think, sorry, was that your question? What did I, what did it feel like? It was, yeah, like what uh, was the process of, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was definitely terrifying. Um, and I, I remember feeling a lot of anger. I felt a lot of, um, some of which I think I poured into rooster vein and some of my earlier stuff, um, a lot of anger about academia and a lot of feeling like I'd been tricked. And also the big question of like, what the hell am I supposed to do with this skill set that I have and where can I use it? Um, so we came back to Canada, my family, my wife and, and, uh, three kids. And we moved into my parents' basement, which was a fun, uh, end to my PhD when I thought that I'd be going to you know, some neat place and starting a job. Um, and eventually we landed in Ottawa, which is where I live right now. So Ottawa is the capital of the city of Canada. Not everybody knows that, but it was made famous recently by some truckers protesting, um, which you may have seen on the American news. So um, Ottawa is the capital city. It's a government city. So I didn't really know anybody here, but I kind of figured if I could make a go of it somewhere with my PhD, um, this would probably be the place. And as it turned out, it was probably, we can talk, I won't get ahead of my story here, but as it turns out, it was a good place. But um, there was a lot of darkness, a lot of questioning, a lot of fear. And it took me quite a while before I really got my feet under me and even realized that I could build a career with this degree. I want to say with, but also like in spite of the degree too. Like yeah. there's a lot of, for a humanities grad like me, I think there was both. I mean, a lot of like, I don't know, like I see some of my friends doing data science and stuff. And often it's like, there's a path from academia into quote unquote industry. Mm. Um, or obviously like people studying like medicine and stuff. Like there are certain paths that there are industry jobs waiting at the other side at pharmaceutical companies or something for humanities grads. It doesn't really happen like that. You need to kind of be creative. So um, it was when I finally figured out I could do something um, with and in spite of my degree, um, it was definitely a relief, but it took a long time. And it was definitely very, uh, I, I remember being very afraid. It was really lonely. Um, and I didn't even know who to talk to about it or where to turn. Um, because, you know, my, my department was so focused on academic jobs, notwithstanding the couple little seminars they did that the professors didn't even think were worth their time showing up to on, uh, yeah. on non-academic jobs. So yeah, it was, it was definitely a tough time. And I know, I mean, there's probably listeners going through that right now. It's definitely a really tough tough place that a lot of PhDs come to. Absolutely. And and one of the phrases that you said really stuck with me, and that's the feeling that, that you've been tricked. And um, I felt that way. And I'm just wondering, what, what do you feel, what were the forces that kind of put you in a place to make you feel like you'd been like tricked or um, like things didn't turn out how you expected them to? Yeah, I think the feeling of being tricked, I mean, it's uh, it's a word that carries a lot of weight. Um, so I'm using it carefully, but I think I still am okay with it. Like, I think, I think this is something a lot of academics need to reckon with. Like, just the, I don't think it was necessarily intentional, obviously, but um, 
the combination of like an academic culture that refused to acknowledge any work outside of academia as meaningful. Um, so the fact that I didn't really hear about people who left academia and it was almost like they had died. And the combination between that and like just, I think a lot of, I don't want to get into nitty gritty here and I don't want to point fingers at individual people, but I, I think I was just misled about when I was being recruited, I was misled about the realities of the tenure track job. Now in their defense, I mean, five years. So when I was recruited to five years from then, things may have changed, but um, also I think the academic job market has been shit for decades now. So um, yeah, so I think I, I had that feeling of being tricked. I, like, I don't know. I don't know if I'll carry that word forward or not, but it's definitely an accurate word to describe how I felt at the end of my PhD. Like, I was really angry. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So what do you think current grad students are being um, kept in the dark about in terms of the academic job market? I I think it's getting better. Like, I do I do see more and more profs who are kind of, leveling with their students and saying like, but I don't know. I mean, the whole thing is just really complicated because when you say to somebody, when you say to a grad student, you're not going to get a job, you need to face the fact, but you still accept them. Like to me, that's a really underhanded thing. And there's a whole kind of conversation here, but like when you're willing to take somebody's money and you're willing to get them to come and, you know, do your work and your research and that sort of thing and feel like you've somehow done your due diligence just by telling them you're not going to get a tenure track job. Um, and even, let's be honest, they probably think, like I did, they'll be the exception in some cases. So it's, yeah, like it's a tough, it's a, it's a tough thing. And I think, I, I've said this for a long time. And even when I started talking about PhD careers, I would talk about transferable skills. And I found that for me, for me, talking about transferable skills was a way of me saying, like, there are actually things you can do with your degree. And I saw some of my material, my blog posts that I was doing, and I'd see some people twist it and say, look, you should get a PhD because it will give you these transferable skills, which was never what I meant. It was just that you have, as a byproduct of a PhD, you do have transferable skills. So I think the whole thing is really complicated. I'm really not super happy with um, the way departments communicate with PhDs even now, even if it has gotten better. I think a lot of pr prospective students aren't really in a position to judge how unlikely they are to get the tenure track job if that's what they want. Um, or also like on the other side, how I don't think a lot of people are really good at gauging how their PhD will set them up for non-academic jobs, if at all. Um, yeah. And I think there's a whole big, there's a whole kind of systemic issue here because I think the bigger thing is like I could have, the job I'm doing right now, the work I'm doing right now, I could be doing with, with a bachelor's degree. Um, but I didn't know. So there's also just a lot of like career preparedness we need to do across the board so that people don't think, oh, I can't get a job with my philosophy degree unless I go to a PhD. Because realistically, there are tons of places you can work with a philosophy degree and make really good money. Um, but people just don't know. So it's just there's kind of the communication gap, I think, across the whole spectrum. But definitely for PhDs. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So, okay. So you're now in Ottawa and you're looking at your career options. So what happened next after that? Yeah, I started, I started networking. Um, I guess the word I discovered later was informational interviews. I didn't really have that word, but I figured I just should talk to people and figure out because I, I truthfully, I didn't even know where to apply. I did have one guy, sort of a friend of a friend said um, that I could come and work for him. He had like a, he worked for a construction company and basically I could go and like sweep floors at the new builds for like $17 an hour. 
and that was kind of depressing for her. Yeah. so I, was, I remember thinking like geez is this the best offer i'm gonna get like 17 dollars an hour with my phd sweeping floors at a home construction company um but i you know i just met a lot of people i have coffee with everybody i could talk i just started reaching out to people on linkedin i started um yeah, I reached out to people on LinkedIn. There was an app called Shaper. I haven't been on it in a few years. I don't know if it's even there or as popular, but it was sort of like a matchmaking app for networking. So I used that and, uh, you know, did the whole swipe right kind of thing. And I found that a lot of people were willing to talk to me. So I would have coffee with as many strangers as I possibly could and, and um, kind of find out what they did. And that process really sort of opened my mind to where I could go. And because it's Ottawa, it's a government city, the word I heard the most was policy. So I didn't really know what policy meant, but I kind of started to tell people, I think I'm looking for a job in policy. Um, so I, I ended up eventually, I mean, it took a few months, but I ended up eventually landing, I guess it was like an informational interview. I reached out to a vice president at a think tank here in Ottawa. It was like a connection of a somebody I had coffee with was going to introduce me. Um, and she wrote back and said, we're looking for somebody one week later. So we're back with Chris today to finish up our story. And we left off at the policy think tank that you were getting recruited to where someone had just quit and uh, they needed someone to start running their projects ASAP. So what happened after that? Yeah, so I, I started working at the Think Tank, and it was a real trial by fire in terms of non-academic work. I really jumped in in the deep end. I was running, I think, like six different projects at once. Like, it was just really, really hectic. Um, and essentially, it was kind of like running research projects. It was a little more, I mean, in academia, obviously, I'd go away and do my own research on my own as a humanities person. That's kind of often what it looks like. But um, at the Think Tank, I was kind of convening roundtables and uh, talking to experts and it was it was neat in that I really quickly grew my network outside of academia because I was having to bring together people from government and from uh, businesses across the country and nonprofits and uh, national associations, things like that. So it was a really neat way to grow my network fast. The other thing that working for the think tank did was it, it sort of set a lot of the groundwork for me um, for what would eventually become Christian Um my, uh, my career's website that initially started specifically for PhDs. And what happened at the think tank is I met a lot of people with PhDs who were working as consultants or working high up in, you know, quote unquote industry. Um, this being not just industry in terms of like pharmaceutical companies, which I think is what a lot of STEM PhDs think, but for me as a humanities major, seeing people with humanities PhDs or social science PhDs working for um, banks, <laughs> senior like senior user research stuff, senior, like all these different kind of senior roles. And the one thing that really impressed me was a series of consultants that I had to work with who, some of them had PhDs, they didn't all have PhDs, but they were essentially very, it was very much like, a, it gave me a, a picture for how you can make money as a consultant outside of academia, um, essentially by owning kind of subject matter expertise and getting hired for that. And I hired a lot of those people and I also watched how they built their careers. And again, this is where I say that this, uh, laid a lot of the groundwork for Rooster Vane because they weren't really applying for jobs. They weren't they weren't like looking for recruiters to hire them. They basically just kind of forged their own careers um, with the combination of their personal brand, their subject matter expertise, and their network, which all of them had a really strong network. And a lot of them would make great money 
being an expert in you know energy policy or something like that. So the think tank really not only was was it a good first job for me, it also opened my eyes to a lot of possibilities in terms of what could come next. Um, after the think tank, should I just keep going or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it. we'll we'll circle back to a couple things later. Okay. Uh, yeah, so after the think tank, I uh, got a job working for the Canadian government. It was essentially helping other countries build refugee programs, drawing on Canada's experience. So that was really cool. So I was working with governments from around the world, um, countries like Germany, Argentina, Australia, um, helping essentially just working closely with government officials and some nonprofit uh, groups as well, and helping them as they were creating new refugee sponsorship programs, which is a model that we use in Canada for settling um, for resettling refugees and also it exists in the States too. So I really, yeah, so I, so I worked for the government, um, did that for a little while and then I left, I was really tired of, it was, it was pre pandemic, but I was actually really tired of commuting into an office, which I was still doing at that point. And the commute was just killing me. It was like an hour each way almost. It was just really too much. So I decided to have a go at starting, um, at starting a consulting business. So I, jumped in and I started consulting. I can talk more about the nitty gritty here, but just this really high level. Um, I worked at first for a lot of kind of like the refugee facing clients, the kind of people I was working with from the government side. I went to the private sector side or the, the nonprofit side and started working there as a consultant, doing a lot of things like writing big grant proposals for Horizon 2020 grants in Europe, things like that. Um, and then my consulting slowly evolved. The nice thing about becoming a consultant was really just, it, it's a pretty broad term for anything that people would pay me to do. So it evolved over time and I did things um, like doing program reviews for universities, for professionalization stuff, for, uh, for grad students. Um, I ended up doing just a bunch of different stuff and I was also doing Rooster Bain on the side at this point. So I was writing and speaking um, to, uh, to grad students as well. And I eventually, along the way, I took another contract, went back to the Canadian government again and helped build a new refugee program um, there, they kind of brought together what we have. We have two lines, well, we have three, but there, there were two lines of refugee and immigration. Sorry, let me say that again. There were two lines of immigration that we were bringing together, the economic side of immigration and the refugee sponsorship side of immigration. It was really groundbreaking. I helped to create the policy for a new program. Um, so I went back to the government for a little while, remotely this time because it was in the middle of the pandemic. Um, and then I've slowly made my way towards what I do now for consulting, which is actually spun out of my blog because I love writing and I love um, creating content. Um, I essentially moved towards writing and creating content for companies. So um, right now I work with uh, tech companies, I guess you could say primarily SaaS software as a service companies, building content, telling stories, building, kind of building out websites and especially helping them get search engine content, which is really lucrative. Um, and it's funny because I sort of just evolved away from policy. Policy was a lot of fun for me at the time. And I think as an academic, there was a natural sense that I should just be working on these kind of big picture policy issues. But I, I really love storytelling. I really love um, writing. So moving towards what I do now actually was a much better fit for me in the long run. Um, and then I'm still blogging. I'm still speaking. I'm still kind of playing around with a bunch of other things. So when asked what I do, the answer is kind of muddy. But I just kind of do things that interest me and, and keep my hand in a lot of things. Yeah, that's awesome. Just out of curiosity, the uh, the tech the tech SaaS businesses that you uh, work with are they more B two B or B two C companies? Um, it could be either. 
I'm just okay. trying to think. Uh, my biggest client right now, I mean, I won't name it, but it's on my LinkedIn if anybody wants to go and look. But um, yeah, my biggest client is kind of a mixture of both. So. Okay, very cool. Um, that's awesome. We should talk afterwards about the tech company my wife works for. It's a startup. Oh. I don't know if they have any kind of big branding push right now. Um, so if we were to go back, so you've made several like really cool transitions in your career over the last few years. Um, were there any like aha moments or like big takeaways or, you know, uh, examples or experiences that you remember from your, uh, policy jobs that you wouldn't have got in academia? Like any, anything that showed you the other side of life that you would not have gotten in academia. Does that make sense? I think so. Um, and if I can answer it, well, I mean, I think everything, basically, there was almost nothing about what I did outside of academia that made sense according to the kind of lens I'd been taught to look at the world with academia. Um, even in the think tank, I know a lot of academics think, oh, I just wanted to work in the think tank because it looks like sort of a para-academic kind of space. And it is, but I mean, a lot of my work was trying to get people to fund projects and uh, building relationships with quote-unquote stakeholders so I think like every day was an experience of trying totally new things and learning new things and being pushed out of my comfort zone and that was probably a really good thing I think and that really helped me to see the world differently and I think the other thing too is that a lot of my academic training I actually had to unlearn stuff around. Yeah. Um, just for an example, I mean, one of the things about being an academic is you're an expert in your tiny little area and you don't feel qualified to talk about anything else. And all of a sudden I was leading projects on like energy policy and economic inclusion and these big questions that I didn't know anything about. And I had to go read a lot and go talk to experts. I obviously would you know, hold these round tables, not single-handedly, but I would, I would organize them. And then I would hold the pen writing a report that would go to the federal government or whatever for, you know, the future of policy around this stuff. And essentially I had to say, here's what we should do based on, you know, some of it, it wasn't my name, it was in my think tank's name, but um, essentially I think it, it taught me that a lot of what I learned in academia, that you have to be an expert before you can speak to something. I learned how to become an expert, you know, quote unquote, an expert really fast, at least by kind of lay people's standards. So that's just one example, but I mean, I think it's been a nonstop way of unlearning how I saw the world in academia and learning to view it better. And also, I think the other thing that really changed a lot was unlearning what I felt was important. I mean, I think in academia, I believed that the only way to be happy was doing specific subject level research in ancient history. And as I as I moved out and tried different things and, you know, led projects on economic policy, things like that, I just had a lot of fun. I was just constantly surprised by the way my sense of what was meaningful was reframed. And I think it's one of the things a lot of people worry about if they leave academia, will I still be able to do meaningful work? And I don't think the answer is always yes. I've seen people struggle. Um, but for me, it was also just a way of reframing what meaningful work actually is and getting to try different things and getting to, you know, now landing on, marketing which is i think for a humanities grad like marketing for a tech company is pretty much a nightmare for, for a lot of humanities grads because um a lot of times just the way we think about capitalism or whatever you know it's just right. we're trained to think like oh this is like evil marketing 
in reality, it's just a lot of fun and it's giving people access to great products they love and are using. So um, it's just, I, I think there's just been a lot of learning to see the world differently, but that's the fun. I mean, I'm not the person that was in my PhD, thankfully, anymore. I'm a very different person. Um, and every year that I spend outside of academia, I look less and less like that person to the point that, yeah. I mean, I could talk about it later, but one of the reasons I'm moving on from talking about academia is just because I feel like it's a different world. Like it's five, almost five years ago now I left and it's seems less and less like I understand that world anymore and more and more that I just exist in a different world. So it's just, it's been a really natural evolution, but it's also just been a lot of fun. That makes so much sense. Policy is a, probably one of the top three things I hear from uh, folks that I talk to mainly on Instagram about where they want to go after they graduate, if they don't want to go to academia. Um, and that always strikes me as interesting. I feel like that's something I never considered for folks who are thinking about policy and are currently in their grad programs. What, what should they be thinking about or doing or um, preparing for in order to make some kind of transition into industry or uh, policy? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, just kind of really quickly, the way when we talk about policy, it's a big word that gets thrown around a lot. So just really quickly, the way to think about the policy ecosystem, let me say this quick, because I think it'll help people kind of frame thinking about policy careers. Um, fundamentally, a lot of policy is based around government. Government is this huge engine that spends a lot of money, makes a lot of decisions that affect our everyday lives. Um, there's also the political side, the non-bureaucratic side, the you know, elected side, there are people doing policy there to a smaller extent. Um, it's true here in Canada, but I'm pretty sure it's true in the US as well. The bureaucratic engine is much bigger than the political engine. I think somebody fact checked me on that, but it's definitely true in Canada. So then there are sort of the organizations that feed into and thrive off of government. So there are um, national associations like industry groups. And there are a lot of them. If you Google industry groups in the US, you'll see there are hundreds of them that all want to have a say in what government does and the decisions government makes. That's where we get the word lobbyist, right? We hear about these people who want to influence what government does. So those types of groups hire policy analysts because they need smart people who can, you know, if they're going to the government and making a case for, I don't know, like a program in schools, helping kids drink milk, if it's like the dairy farmers of America or something, um, there's policy work behind that. You wouldn't initially think about it, but there will. There's research, there's arguments, there's presenting a case. So there's that side of things. And then there's like the business side of things and the whole, like a lot of businesses will hire policy people too, especially the big ones, because again, they're like feeding in and trying to influence that decision-making. So that's sort of the policy ecosystem of any given country. And because I work with a lot of different countries, it's pretty similar in, in most countries. And then you can kind of extend that to the international space where you have groups like the United Nations and they're doing sort of um, intergovernmental policy type stuff. And it's a lot of the same skill set. So po policy is a big word for a lot of things, but I think there's often a lot of research, there's often a lot of writing, there's often a lot of um, like stakeholder relations, like meeting people, building relationships with people in between different um, you know sectors. And essentially, most academics have that skill set. So it is, it's sort of a natural place for academics to think about going. The other thing I liked about policy when I was there is I think it's a really good way to have an impact. You know, I remember writing my postdoc proposal and I was going to look at some something in ancient history in Egypt 
and talking about how important it was you know, um, as a human at spreading my research proposal saying this is really important we really need to figure out you know this thing about the economy of ancient Egypt or religion in ancient Egypt or something like that and then I went to government and here I'm actually building programs that help refugees find homes and come to Canada and you know all that good stuff so the irony I think the way I thought about impact in academia was really kind of wrong and when I got to policy and started doing stuff that impacted people's lives for real and actually made the world better for them hopefully if we did our job right um, that was really cool so I think there's a really natural flow into policy for a lot of people and I think a lot of academics do end up enjoying policy um, it just it wasn't and it ended up not being where I wanted to land but I still have a toe in I mean I'm still thinking about policy stuff I'm still talking to policy people I may jump projects now and then um, but for the most part I don't work exclusively in policy yeah. Yeah. So for folks who do want to make that jump, what should they think about in terms of getting a foot in the door? I know, I know right, you mentioned yeah, yeah. a lot of networking, uh, helped you. Is there yeah. Now, networking was pretty huge for me. Um, for actual policy, I mean, you can look at government recruitment programs, um, depending on what your subject matter expertise is. Like if you're doing a PhD in policy or something, it may be a, there may be a really good fit. If you're like me and you did a PhD in ancient history and sure, like, religion and antiquity, there's not always as obvious of a jump. So what happened is networking for me really filled the gap and helped me to, I think when I started networking, a lot of it was quote unquote informational interviews. And that was really just about learning the language, learning what people were even doing. And over time, some of those informational interviews turned into people saying, oh, we need to hire somebody or with the think tank um, turned into a job. So that was policy work too, working with the think tank. Um, so I think networking is, is really big for that reason, both to learn about it and also to help you kind of get the language to frame your skills um, for policy. Look at, you can look at government recruitment programs. I know, I think there are state level government recruitment programs too in some cases that will recruit um, PhDs or master's degree holders to policy. So you can check for that in your state or, or at the federal level. Um, the other thing, sometimes like actually knowing a little bit about policy so one of the outputs for a lot of policy work is a policy report or policy policy brief and I mean, you can look up on the internet how to write that and start to think about what you would do to write that or even i mean you could probably sit down and write one in an afternoon if there's something you know a little bit about um so you could have that in your back pocket to show somebody but really i think for the most part it probably comes back to the networking um yeah. and i found like well, no, I'll stop there. Sorry, full stop. It comes back to networking. It's one of the biggest Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And you're you're probably the second or third person who's uh, had networking play such like an integral part of uh, transitions in, in your profession. And uh, networking is not something that I really had a big skill set in, in academia. Um, and uh, it, it's cool to, I don't know, hear all these things that I could, I could get better at myself. Um, and speaking of getting better, all the while throughout this transition in your career, you were doing rooster vein. Is that correct? Yeah. I, I Can started, you tell us a little bit more about that? I think I started when I was at the Think Tank and I had written a post or two on leaving academia. And I remember I had started it in like, um, in like the spring, like May or something. And I didn't think anyone would read it. Essentially, I, to pull, sorry, to start the story again, essentially I had gone 
I had gone and done a professionalization seminar at my department and talked a little bit about the type of policy jobs, just what basically what I just said to you, and talked about some of the options and places people could work with a humanities degree. Um, and some of the people who were there said that this was good at material and that it wasn't really something they had a lot of access to, which I know because I didn't either. And they said, you should start a blog. So I sat down on a Sunday afternoon, not long after that, came up with a name, Rooster Bain, which was just pretty much pulled out of a hat. I was just typing names into Bluehost, trying to find something that was available. I really liked the .com, uh, .com uh, domain name. So I found the name and I threw up a few blog posts and I didn't really think much of it for a little while. And then I think maybe that September or October, I was um, surfing Twitter and somebody had asked about what you can do with a PhD. And I shared some of my posts and they sort of blew up on Twitter. So all of a sudden I look at my analytics and there was, you know, like thousands of people reading my blog, which was, I had started blogs before and I don't think more than like 50 ever read them. <laughs> so going all of a sudden having thousands of people in like in one or two cases, even like I had days when I had like three or 4,000 people a day reading the blog, I was wow. just sort of blown away by the potential and, um, combination of I loved writing, I loved the storytelling, I was I'm really creative, so I loved the blogging aspect of it, um, and then maybe a little bit that I felt like there was a conversation here I wanted to be a part of, so I just kept growing it, I kept writing, kept kind of exploring how to, how to tell that story and how to create a knowledge base around leaving academia. And the thing, the thing that appealed to me about it at the time especially was just that I thought it was a way to kind of get information out at scale. I realized as I started talking about this, how many academics were in the same space as me. When I was in my religious studies department, scared about my tenure track job and the lack thereof, I didn't realize this was something that was being replicated across universities around the world, essentially, that were just yeah. massively overproducing PhDs, probably for most disciplines, if not all. Um, so when it took off, I was just taken aback by the possibilities and the potential, the way that a blog post could reach thousands of people in a way that I could never do if, you know, if people were doing one-on-one -on -one chats with me, like coffee talks or something, there's no way. So it just gave me a way to scale the impact in the conversation. And I kind of leaned into it and it was just fun. A little, a little bit addictive even, but a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, have, you, have you had like a favorite blog post or a most viral blog post? I think the most viral one was... Well, in terms of leaving academia, I think the most viral one was one called um, What Nobody Told Me About Leaving Academia, or mm. I, like, I think the most viral one was called What Nobody Told Me About Leaving Academia. The ones that are my favorite, I don't know, it's hard to say. Like, I feel like the blog is just an evolution of my thinking. So, I mean, we were just talking before we started recording, you were reading one of my posts this week about work blocks, and it's nothing to do with academia, but it's just sort of right. where my brain is at these days. So. I think I have fun as I go and I look back on posts I wrote four years ago and I think, oh my God, that's so bad. <laughs> Maybe I'll update it. But ultimately, it's just the practice of putting yourself out there. You're going to feel like that sometimes if you look back at your old stuff. But um, yeah, so I guess my favorite post is usually the one I most wrote most recently. <laughs> yeah. No, it fits most of what I'm thinking about right now. Exactly. No, that makes a ton of sense. And so, and, and Rooster Vane has taken... Uh, some changes in direction originally it was more focused on uh phd life and and post phd life and now it's a little more focused on careers in general is that correct yeah it's basically the the site just matched my own evolution so i started by thinking about phd careers 
And then the more I did that work, I realized I would, I would get messages from people with master's degrees and even bachelor's degrees saying that the material was helping them. And I thought, well, you know, if I had had better career preparation from my bachelor's degree, I might not have done a PhD in the first place. Yeah. So I started doing kind of that level stuff. So it started just becoming like a career blog for grads. And it's evolving again now because the thing that has got me really interested these days is the question of work and purpose. So I saw it with academics, for example, that I would see PhDs and I, you know, they, they could get a job outside of academia, but they would continue to wrestle, usually at least for a couple of years, with the, the question of like, what do I want to do? What is purpose? What is, you know, how is work meaningful? And even on the other side, interestingly enough, these professors who were tenure track professors who had by my former estimation, they had like the dream job. And I was surprised at how many of them would reach out to me and were miserable in academia and wanted out. So I, I just, I got really into, that's the academic angle. Obviously there's a much bigger question about work with purpose that I think is touching like most workplaces around the world right now. And as we think about things like, um, do I have to come into work or can I work at home? Like, why do we choose that? Because I want to balance work with things that are important to me. So it's just an issue that I really care a lot about. So I'm slowly transitioning the blog. It's going to take a little bit of time to get it done and some developing that I need to hire out. So there's like a little, it's a little more, um, it's a little more work than past iterations, but essentially what I'm hoping to do is to create a meaningful work index on the homepage that you can kind of create a quiz and it will help you think through like what, makes work meaningful. So I'm excited about that, but it's still probably a few months away, but I don't know when this comes out. Maybe I'll be closer by the time, by the time this podcast comes out. Yeah. You know, uh, today is, um, what is today? September 8th and it'll probably be a month or a month and a half, I think before it comes out. Okay. I'm stuck I'll try my best. That. I'll try my best yeah. to get it by then. So go okay. to the website <laughs> if you're listening to this and I'll see if I made it, but if not. And it's, it's roostervane.com. And rooster vein is like the, the little uh, rooster on top of a like farm, like the metal one yeah. that spins in the wind, right? Yeah, that was sort of the initial idea. I, my nickname was Rooster when I was a camp counselor when I was younger. Oh, and awesome. I was just trying to come up with things. And I like, I like the idea of like the weather vane that sort of gives you, um, gives you a sense of direction, kind of tells you which way the wind's blowing. So I like the metaphor of it. And we don't use that particular image yeah. anymore, but that's where the name came from. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Uh, and so you're a camp counselor. Have you, do you consider yourself like a helper kind of person? Could you say more? I don't know what you mean by helper. Um, a helper. So that, I guess that's a slang term that, that therapists use for anyone who engages in a role that's primarily about like the benefit of someone else, like a nurse, a teacher, um, a therapist, you know, those kinds of roles. But it's also kind of like a, like a personality type in some way um camp counselor just stood out to me because a lot of people who i know who do helping roles also had jobs like as a camp counselor or something like that when they were younger oh that's interesting uh i don't know do you do a lot of mentoring like informal some i guess some not a lot i have yeah kind of a couple people i would consider maybe unofficially i've never called myself for sure but no, I, I do try to help people when they reach out and stuff when I can. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I've never thought about it before. Maybe I'm a helper. I don't know. Definitely not as much as some people pour their lives into other people. So I still, but yeah, I guess where I can. Yeah. Uh, so that that's awesome uh, to hear about the direction Rooster Vane is going in. Um, in turn, before we move on to something else, is there 
anything that that folks should like look specifically for at Rooster Vane? Do you have like an email list that they can sign up for or something like that? It, there will be, but again, it's all being sort of overhauled, and I'm not sure where the non-academic stuff is going to fit. So that's why this podcast is kind of um, in between my old world and my new world. So um, for the time being, there's still a section on the blog called Leaving Academia. So if you go to the blog, you can see there are a bunch of posts there and resources on Leaving Academia. Um, and then, I mean, type like academia into the search bar on the blog, and that'll bring you up any posts that I've talked about academia. So it's, it's not great for, for UX right now, but it's sort of just in progress. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's awesome. Okay, so the last turn in your career was into entrepreneurship, correct? Consulting uh, slash consulting? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to kind of go off on your own in that way? I mean, I think, I think it was terrifying. They say a lot of... It, it was really easy to sit at the think tank, for example, and watch with these policy experts. I talked about these people who are building their careers as kind of policy experts, consulting, doing this work. It was really easy to sit and watch them and say, I could do what they do and be making, you know, 100, 150 grand a year, just helping people think through big issues. Um, the reality was a little more tricky. <laughs> so it took me quite a bit longer than I thought. But I think the biggest thing with entrepreneurship was... I mean, this is, this is so cliche, it really is, but like for me, well, okay, network was one huge thing for me. Um, there are different ways into entrepreneurship, but for the type of consulting work that I do, a lot of opportunities have come through um, my networking. So that was kind of one thing. The other thing I think, though, was really the mindset issue. And this is like, you know, every entrepreneur magazine or whatever that you would ever subscribe to will talk to you about entrepreneurs and mindset, but it, it really is a big thing. I think the fear of putting yourself out there, I wasn't from a super entrepreneurial family. Like my parents were pretty um, kind of blue collar, like work Well, my mom was stable, but my dad was like work for the man kind of thing. And so I was never really raised to think about entrepreneurship. We even had sort of negative things we said about business people. So it took me a long time, I think, to get over the mental block of being an entrepreneur and not taking it personally when people said, no, thanks, we don't want to hire you. or not taking it personally if I put a product out and people didn't buy it. Um, at the beginning, I mean, I remember doing, I created my first course and I think like seven people bought it and I was selling it for like 20 bucks or something. So do the math. It wasn't, I didn't make a lot of money off it. And I was just like, I was gutted. It took me months to come back from that. So I was just like, first of all, you know, I had this big following. I was like, oh, I'm going to sell all these courses. And then I felt even guilty for charging 20 bucks for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then over time, I just got better and better at saying, like, this is not about me personally. It's not people rejecting me personally. It's just about the product, you know. So my, my skin's gotten a lot thicker. I've gotten better at sales. I've gotten better about, you know, money. Money was a big thing. Like, Asking people for 20 bucks seemed like almost an impossible feat then, and now that's such a big deal. So, I mean, there's just an evolution that comes as an entrepreneur, but I think it's the reason I really like it more than anything else I've ever done is because of that evolution. Like, it's really fun to be, like, one of the things I found when I was working for the government, say, was there just wasn't a lot of growth. I could see kind of what my career was going to look like. There wasn't much uncertainty. There wasn't much that was going to change within me other than maybe I would move up a level and have a bit more responsibility. Whereas being an entrepreneur, you just jump in at the deep end and everything's on your shoulders and you're either going to starve, feast or famine, basically based on, uh, 
based on your ability to kind of keep your head in check and go make stuff happen. So it's not for everybody. I don't think I, there are people who just think everybody should be entrepreneurs. I really don't think that's true. But for me, it's become a way of life and it would be really difficult to go back to any other way. I mean, I could certainly see myself going back into a job for a year or two if it was something that really fit kind of what I want to do. But I definitely couldn't see myself like doing what my parents and their generation did of like getting a job and sticking with it for life. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, so how long have you been doing the consulting gig? Uh, like three years, three years. That's yeah. I, so I actually, I have a corporation, so I incorporated my company January, 2020, which was two months before the pandemic started, (laughs) which was fun. So my clients that I was supposed to do this client work, like organizing round tables and doing the kind of stuff I was doing from the think tank and that all came crashing down when the pandemic hit. So that was a really good trial by fire right off the bat (laughs) for my being an entrepreneur. Um, but yeah, so I've been essentially like two and a half years coming up on three years. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I feel like the t- the pandemic time has just flown by. It's been an odd, yeah, odd time sure. in the world. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like the kind of random? Do you feel like the pandemic uh, like made the demand for your kind of like services more valuable to businesses or or elevated in their mind in any way? Did you feel any change in demand? Do you mean specifically like with marketing services? Like, what do you mean? Yeah, like on like it, it felt like during the pandemic, like everything went online. And uh, I guess like I noticed a big change in like the traction of on I got on posts and that kind of a thing in social media. Um, and I know a lot of businesses had to pivot to doing more like online branding, online sales, online advertising kind of a thing. I was just wondering if you felt like it had any yeah, impact. That's, that's a great question. I don't have a good answer for it. I'm not sure. I mean, obviously there's also just a natural evolution towards online. So like Mm. the space was going to grow anyways. And I think you're right. The pandemic accelerated that. Um, My specific skill set is like building organic traffic from Google, which, you know, for a company spending, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, even a month, in some cases on advertising, um, building an organic engine that keeps bringing customers to you is really valuable. And it's just becoming more valuable because the cost of ad spend keeps going up. So it's definitely like I'm seeing a growth in people aware of this, but it's, it's tough to say. Yeah. I don't have a really good answer for it. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, for, for folks who are interested in doing something entrepreneurial, um, you know, probably they're probably in grad school or maybe have freshly graduated and are in some kind of limbo state trying to figure out where they're, what they're doing with their career. What should they be thinking about in terms of being an entrepreneur? What do you wish you would have known years ago? in grad school not that you were thinking about being an entrepreneur necessarily at that time yeah no i wasn't but um a couple things come to mind the one comes back to networking that networking just as it's exploration for jobs networking is also an exploration a way to explore entrepreneurship so if you are thinking about becoming an entrepreneur um and there are a lot of different forms that could take from consulting to creating a product to um, I don't know, even something like software as a service or whatever, um, or if you're you know, creating a physical product, whatever. There are different ways to be an entrepreneur, but I think one of the really great ways is, is to get around other entrepreneurs and try to get access to people. That could be an informational interview with somebody who's, you know, has a PhD and is doing cool consulting work and just asking them how they do, like what they do and how they do it kind of thing. 
Um, it could be conversations with companies who might eventually hire you. Like I, I just basically would talk to anybody and I wish I had started that during my PhD. I didn't really start it until after, until I was living in my parents' basement in desperate. I could have, I could have had a much softer landing outside of academia. Um, I think just reading and learning too, even taking courses, if you can, I mean, there are some for free, but if you can afford a course, it's not a bad thing, um, on how to run a business, how to like, just, just as much as. I have to focus on being a good consultant. I also have to know the basics of bookkeeping and tax write-off. And now, I mean, I do, I do business in different countries. So you're gonna have to know a little bit about like international tax, not the tax code per se, but like how to charge for taxes and how to, you know, different things like that. So there's a lot of nuts and bolts in running a business that you don't really think about. So I think just reading and educating yourself as much as you can on, on the ins and outs of business. I just read a lot of, um, I, I mean, I read business books. I read like bookkeeping for dummies and stuff like that. Um, but I also, I got a lot of inspiration reading the stories of other entrepreneurs, reading biographies, autobiographies of um, people that built businesses. So I think just kind of immersing yourself. They, they say like this is another really old cliche, but they say that you become the what is it five or six people you spend the most time with. So yeah, when you're hanging out in academia with academics, it's easy to think that that is the real world and that that's all there is and that's the only way to see the world but if you can start to break free and build yourself a couple of relationships beyond the academy um you'll start to see the world differently so just try to try to meet people one more thing yeah potentially the other thing it didn't really apply to me i don't think although i i shifted my research a little bit um away from like strictly religious studies and i in my dissertation i talked about kind of immigration and trade and even like a little bit on um, what was like new institutional economics, which is economic theory. And bringing some of that stuff into my work when I left academia gave me a way to talk that made sense to people in policy because I, I knew a little bit of economics, I knew some of the basics. Um, this, I mean, obviously I'm not an economist. <laughs> it was just, I had a little bit of the language from touching a little bit on some of the people who were studying um, economic history. So. I could have done a better job of that, and I think some people could. So if you're looking at policy, for example, can you tilt your project to create the expertise and the type of project that's going to speak to a real policy issue? Um, one of the examples that, uh, that I always give is people doing like gender theory and stuff like that. Like for humanists, that's kind of a really popular, um, popular thing to do, like queer theory, gender theory. And what is happening right now in the Canadian government. I don't know if this is true in the US, but in the Canadian government, they're doing what's called gender-based policy analysis. So they're bringing a gender-based kind of assessment lens to policy work. So if that's your area of expertise, you've got something that you actually have a way, like you actually have something you can apply to a real policy question. So I think the more you can line up your research and your project with things in the quote unquote real world that people actually care about, I think the easier it gets to get those invitations to roundtables as an expert or to build a consulting yeah. business or whatever. So if I was starting again, I mean, probably wouldn't do the PhD, but if I was to do, if I were to do the PhD, um, I would pick a project that actually fit within a big question that people in the world are asking. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, let's see. So what's next for you? Just continuing the, continuing the consulting thing um transitioning rooster vein 
any other professional things coming down the pipeline? Well, I'm really, so I'm writing this book on work and purpose and I'm super excited about it. So I've been doing a bunch of interviews with like academics and like, um, I don't know, like executives of different companies and HR people and all these interesting people who are thinking about basically how we get happiness from our work, um, both at the theoretical level, but also at the real practical, like how do we keep Gen Z for more than a year because turnover is really high with Gen Z, mm. so stuff like that. So this is sort of, I think, where I'm going. It's just an extension of stuff that interests me. And I think also I found a way without saying too much about like what I'm writing about right now, because it's still really like nascent, but I found a way to bring some of the things I was thinking about in religious studies with ideas of like constructs of meaning and how we, how we construct identity, how we build like say rituals into our lives, like things that I found in studying religion, a lot of that I think um, can be applied to the workplace. So I'm starting to think about like bridging some of that knowledge. Um, so basically I want to write this book about work and purpose. That's like head down doing that transitioning Bruce yeah. Cobain, and then we'll see where that goes. I don't really know, but I think um, in the future, I'd love to keep talking about this question because I think it's kind of, I, I mean, I think it's the question I want to devote the rest of my career to. That's kind of a scary thing to say, but I think it's yeah. just the thing that I find really exciting. So, yeah, and that I mean, it, it feels so, um, I guess, like appropriate to particularly, you know, I think folks coming out of academia, particularly when they leave academia or can't find a home in academia, and all of the meaning. I think about academia kind of like a cult and when you leave a cult, you know, like the whole framework for life was built around that organization. Yeah. And so you're basically like stripped of all that meaning and those values and you have to create it from ground zero. And obviously like work is such a big part of that um, in academia. What what was the, the inspiration for you to write this book? Do you have like a moment or like an experience? I... I actually hired a career coach. Sorry, not, oh, not a career coach, okay. a business coach is the right yeah. way to say it, not a career coach. Um, and she was also like a kind of former best-selling author and, and does writing and speaking and stuff. So I really liked her. I had read some of her books over the past few years. Um, so when I found out she was, um, when I found out I could hire her as a coach, I thought, yes, please. So I yeah. did that. So I invested quite a bit of money in it. It was interesting. It's like the biggest amount I've ever spent on anything to do with my career. But it was so worth it. And initially, when I started writing what I thought was going to be my next book, I started doing research on how people doubled their income, which I thought was really, it is a really important question, because I think one of the things I saw was that a lot of people just need to make more money, you know, and it's probably true of people in academia, but it's true outside too. So I started doing this research, but at the same time, I was working with her. And she sort of helped me uncover like a thread through my story that was really kind of back even before I started into academia, and this thread was kind of like this question of work and purpose that like, why did I even go into academia for the, in the first place? It was obviously because I thought I had a calling there and I thought there was something valuable there for me to do. So it just, it helped me kind of pivot and get really interested in this, how we construct purpose. As you say, I mean, I don't even think it's like, I think we're socialized to in a lot of cases. And it's definitely the case with academics that when you just exist in this world and you create your identity in this world, um, purpose is also wound up in that. So, so what does that look like? So essentially that's a really long answer to the question, but I hired this business coach and she helped me figure it out. So that's kind of, did that answer the question? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I, I actually almost asked you earlier about the consulting business. If you hired a coach, um, uh, 
just I've known a couple of people who started businesses and they've all basically said that getting a coach as you know even like a good or good to average coach will do like amazing things yeah. for your ability to grow and run a business um which totally yeah, makes I, sense I, I agree with that and I think like in retrospect I didn't hire a coach for my consulting business but I should have mm. I mean in retrospect I sort of had this idea that it's a little bit cocky essentially that I can just kind of learn what I need to know and read the right blogs and get the right books at the library. And you can do that to an extent, but there's no comparison for actually talking about your business with somebody on a regular basis and clarifying what you're doing. And also just like the accountability of knowing that, you know, if I tell somebody I'm going to make 10 sales calls this week and I don't, then I have to see them again next time. And say right. that, and do that. So I think, I think a coach is a really good idea in, in retrospect. I'm not telling people to do this, but I would have like put it on my credit card three years ago if I would have known how effective yeah. having a coach would be. So it yeah. really, yeah, it really is powerful. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, uh, one break for one moment. Do you have to leave at the top of the hour, or can we push a little bit past it? It's in ten yeah, minutes. Let me check. I do have another meeting, but I think it's at three. Yeah, I have a meeting at four, so I'm I'm good for a little bit. I feel like I'm just like talking a lot here, so I'm gonna have too much material. <laughs> no, this is great. I <laughs> love right. it. Yeah, I'm good. To, I'm good. Well, let's not say till three, but I'm good for a little bit. For sure. Yeah. 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 Um, so when does the book come out? I don't know. I've only written yeah. the first chapter. So <laughs> yeah, it's just getting started. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Do you have like a, a goal in mind of when you want to have it completed by? I don't really, I mean, I'm, it's been interesting writing the first chapter when I wrote my book on, um, leaving academia, I want to say leaving academia. That's the title of Chris Kettering's book. My book was called doctorate, building a life with a PhD. That took me a minute. Um, so I wrote a book about leaving academia a couple of years ago. Um, and it's on Amazon if people want to read it. And that was really like a brain dump. I think it was a lot of just saying the things I want to say and pouring them out. And this book has been a lot more like, I want to say it right. And I want to get it right, especially when I'm walking this line between like my background of religious studies, which hasn't really typically been applied to thinking about like the workplace and so i'm trying to walk this really careful line um and i'm mixing it with a ton of interviews and stuff too so i'm not in a huge hurry to i, I mean i do want to get it done and I, I want to get it out but i don't have a specific timeline as much as i just want to make sure it's the book that i should be writing and also that it finds a place for you know publishing or whatever that that is that fits kind of what yeah 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 that's awesome um so let's, let's talk just a little bit here at the end about grad students. So, um, so if you were to zoom back to your life in grad school and think about all the things that you are doing now, you know, it, it sounds like a lot of it you couldn't have expected. Were there things that you could have done back then, even not knowing what you were going to get into, that could have better prepared you for the professional life you have now? Yeah, I think a lot of them I've already touched on. I mean, networking obviously is huge. You can start that if you're in first year or second year, start networking. It's not something you have to wait for. I think the thing that I realized as well was how many academics are sort of standing in between the academy and quote unquote real world. So for example, when I was at the government, um, I went to an immigration conference and it, the conference was a mixture of like people who worked in policy, but also academics who were thinking about immigration policy. So it was a really good example of these academics and even grad students in some cases 
who knew people in the government working on the issues they were studying and who knew so so the ability to like bring an issue and not just think about it in your ivory tower but actually like meet and know the real world people who work on that issue is really cool and i think would have been really neat so if you can do that and you're in grad studies um that's a great thing to do you can't always i mean a lot of what i did in the humanities was not really relevant but but if you can find a way to bridge that gap and to put yourself out there and even go to non-academic conferences go to just mm. places where you're going to meet people um and figure out kind of what's happening out in the quote-unquote real world that would have been important the thing that i did that i really don't regret was traveling i applied for a bunch of extra travel funding um so i ended up getting much more than even my stipend because i was applying for travel funding and I mean, it didn't cost me any more to live in. I live in Germany, I live in France, I live in Greece. It actually cost me less to live in all those places than to live in Toronto, which is a very expensive city. So that was a way to both get extra money, which is like nice life hack as a grad student, but also those experiences, that way of like exploring the world um, was really inspiring, helped to grow me as a person in ways that I still kind of benefit from. And, um, just the other thing is that I don't, for that reason, I, I did write a post about how I don't regret my PhD. And that's the reason I don't regret it, because it gave me the opportunity to see the world that I wouldn't have otherwise had, I don't think. Mm. So, so that's pretty cool, too. So if you can, if you're in a position to travel and get experiences like that, I would go for that. That was uh, something that I don't, yeah, I'll never, never regret that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so networking, sounds like networking. Networking, it feels like, has been a huge theme uh, that you've talked about today and uh, before when we were recording last week, um, which, again, I feel like is, uh, and particularly networking in, in the practical world, the real world, the world outside yeah. of academia. Um, yeah, and that, that was something that was so, and I think is so off the radar for so many academics because um, we're in this silo of like, if you don't do the research, if you're not writing papers, then you're just really not part of like this club. And there's no reason to go over there and talk to that club because they're just doing the, you know, the grunt work, so to speak. Um, that's the attitude that I felt like I kind of uh, got or heard when I was in academia um, and then traveling. And that totally makes sense. So let's start to close um so you've got you've got a couple things going on you've got roostervane.com which has had a lot of phd focused materials in the past it's shifting focus to go to a career but there's still a lot of stuff there for phds yeah. and that's just roostervane.com um you've also are you roostervane.com on twitter or are you on twitter i'm my name cj cornway which is maybe I should change it to Chris Cornfoot. Um, I'm not doing much on Twitter these days. I okay. built a big following there and then realized it was really ruining my mental health, so I uh, basically quit. So um, I do still have an account, but I'm not super active. I'm not. I'm basically not that active on any social media right now, but yeah. um, if people do want to connect with me, the best place to do it is probably LinkedIn. Um, I'm using it a little more these days. I find it's a better platform and also a place where more academics should get to because it will help them kind of do this networking and all the stuff that we're talking about. So it's a good place to, good place to go. Awesome. So connect with you on LinkedIn. Check out roostervane.com. And then you do have the book on Amazon, Doctorate, Building a Life with a PhD. Did I get that Do correct? Dr. Ring. Dr. Ring. Yeah. Dr. Ring. Yeah. 
Got it. And who is the target audience for that book? That was PhDs. PhD students. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. That was the like, I've been working outside academia for two years now. How can nobody tell me about all the cool shit I could do? This is my brain dump of what I've learned so far. <laughs> so it's basically what that book was. Yeah, that's great. I think the first chapter is free, so you can read it and see if you want to keep reading it. And if you don't, that's okay. Because remember, awesome. I've dealt with my rejection, fear of rejection, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, okay, so any any final thoughts, any parting things, any action steps that you want people to think about? Oh my god, I don't think so. I mean, the thing that I always try to tell PhDs, I think a lot of PhDs treat leaving academia like it's a death or something really mm. painful or something really unfortunate. And the message that I've always had is that the world on the other side is really good and you can have more impact, you can have more fun, you can definitely make more money. So I think that's my message to people in academia, that if you get beyond the cult, and you're right, I think in so many ways it is a cult, like this kind of group think that this is the only thing we're doing, which is frankly bullshit. Like, go figure out the amazing stuff you can do with your degree, the impact you can have, um, and write your own story. And the great thing is, I mean, I, I think now more than ever, there are lots and lots of academics outside of academia talking about um, using your degree for non-academic reasons or building non-academic careers. So you can jump into that conversation and I think hopefully get inspired by how much you can do. So it's not a plan B in that like you failed at academia, you suck, life's going to be terrible, but you might as well just find a job to pay the bills. My challenge is get beyond that. It might even be that for a year or two. It might take a year or two to get your feet under you, but in the long run, get excited about doing things that matter to you and go and change change the world that sounds so cliche but <laughs> go yeah. do some cool stuff that inspires you yeah awesome love it well chris thank you so much for coming on the show i'd love to chat with you again in the future i feel like there's gonna yeah. be you know a lot of things down the road that come up anyway uh thank you chris and we'll talk to you next time yeah absolutely thanks Folks, thank you for listening to the Grad School Sucks podcast, where we believe that your life and career after grad school should rock. I loved getting to learn about Chris's story for this interview. It was really refreshing to hear about how someone can find a professional life that they love after not finding many opportunities on the academic job market. I think there's a lot in Chris's career path that can be emulated by grad students today. One thing in particular that stands out to me about Chris and his story is how much time and energy he puts into networking. And this begs the question, are you laying the foundation for your future career by building up a strong network of professional connections today? Definitely something to think about and something I'm going to take to heart as I'm not a natural networker type of person. Anyway, be sure to connect with Chris Cornthwaite on LinkedIn. Check out his website at roostervane.com and read the first chapter of his book for free. And that book is called Doctoring, Building a Life for the PhD. I will have links for all of that in the description of today's episode. If you did end up enjoying today's episode, please like and subscribe, leave a comment and write a review. If you know someone who could benefit from listening to this podcast, send them today's episode and let them know why they should check it out. As always, I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and I look forward to bringing you another great episode next week. See you then, grad students. Well, Chris, what is your um, superpower? I think, oh gosh, 
a little bit of warning on that one would be nice. No, I'm kidding. I um, I think my su- superpower is adapting, and I hope that comes through in the interview. <laughs> Ability yeah. to kind of look at what's real and adapt to fit with it. Absolutely. A bit of creativity uh, too. What if you had to be an animal? What animal would you be, and why? Uh. Probably something that could fly. I think flying's kind of cool. I'm like an eagle or something. Nothing too low in the food chain. Very cool. And uh, if you could give, I'm stealing this from somebody else. If you could give someone a gift of under $100, what would it be? What would the gift be? Yeah, what would the gift be? Cheese. You know, like these questions could come in advance, you know? <laughs> Uh, what would I give somebody for under hundred bucks? I don't know. I guess like I like the obvious thing that's coming to mind is a book. Um, yeah. And I don't really have like one in particular. I read a lot. Um, but is there a certain book you've gifted the most? What have I given to people? I've given people. You know the one. This is funny, but like the one I've actually given to people quite a bit is "Rich Dad Poor Dad." Um, oh yeah, which I think like I, I've said on other podcasts about how like Robert Kiyosaki is an interesting character to say the least. Yeah. Um, but it was still like I think one of the books that changed my attitude towards money the most, and I think has affected me long term just because of the kind of framework it gave me for thinking about wealth. So uh, so it's a great one, and it's definitely under hundred bucks. So that would be I guess that's a that's an easy go to. Um, if it was a career book, I think the other, maybe two more, if I could say like, um, what colors your parachute, of course, is a classic, but I think it was really good. Um, and then designing your life, I think is really great too. It's a really good kind of, uh, model for kind of iterating on your career and building and thinking about like do, doing career exploration. It's, it's a really cool way to look at careers. So designing three your books. Life. I don't yeah. think I've read that one. Is that a newer book or an older book? Uh, it's been out for, I think it's maybe about five years old. I'd have to double okay. check, but. It's been out for a few years now. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's cool. a good one. Yeah.